0: Hi, Sarah.
1: Hello, Josh.
0: Welcome to Episode 7 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. This week, as every week, we open with our news roundup of the world of labor. To start with, a striking strike this week in Dubai. Al Jazeera reported a couple days this week of strikes by migrant workers in Dubai against the largest construction company operating in the country. This is significant on the one hand because it's a strike by workers in a country where trade unions are banned and on the other hand because it's a case where we see migrant workers who face particular kinds of vulnerability coming together and taking on this industrial action, this collective action, in this case around issues with unpaid overtime and low wages.
1: From Dubai, um, I'm going to take you to Venezuela, where um, this week there is a new labor law going into effect. Um, It shortens the work week. It requires employers to give two consecutive days off a week. Now Venezuela has the third longest maternity leave in the world. And it gives all workers retirement pensions. And the thing that I really want to focus on here, because it's of particular interest to me, is that included in all of those workers who are getting retirement pensions is full-time mothers. Essentially, Venezuela has now instituted a form of wages for housework. The wages for housework movement has been forgotten by a lot of people who aren't... um, labor history nerds, essentially, but it really focused on bringing together the demands of a labor movement that called for decent pay and conditions for all work, and a feminist movement that noted, not entirely correctly, but still overwhelmingly, that women were responsible for household labor. Um, and so women like Selma James, who is a Marxist feminist, wrote of the need for women to receive wages for housework, and in part, um, as we talked about in episode three of Belabored, partly so that they could refuse to do the work, but in part also so that they could have a measure of economic independence. What it means for full-time mothers to have a, a pension is that they don't need to be married and wait, they don't need to stick around in a possibly abusive relationship, that their work is considered as deserving of a retirement pension as a manual laborer or an office worker.
0: You know, Sarah, this makes me think that to appreciate any one episode of Belabored, I really have to go back and listen to some of the others, like episode three.
1: Funny how that works, huh?
0: Is that still available for free at Descent's website?
1: It is, and also on iTunes.
0: I think we should check that out. So from Dubai to Venezuela to D.C., this week on Tuesday, we saw another one-day non-union low-wage worker strike. In this case, it was by a campaign called Good Jobs Nation, whose major backers include SEIU and the Change to Win Labor Federation of which SEIU is part. This is a campaign that is calling for a change in the working conditions of federally contracted workers and other workers like workers connected to Medicaid and Medicare programs whose jobs depend on taxpayer funding.
1: We mentioned the study on this a few weeks ago.
0: That's right. Demos pointed out, in their estimation, close to 2 million workers, at least, who have taxpayer-supported jobs and make less than $12 an hour. These workers went on strike with a demand for President Obama, calling on him to take executive action to improve their wages and working conditions. Now, there's a history here, The New York Times reported in 2010 that the Obama administration would be implementing what's called high-road contracting, using executive order or the authority of the executive branch to promulgate regulations around contracting to make it more likely that better-paying and more environmentally sustainable and more legally compliant companies would get federal contracts. That policy never came to pass. Heather Higginbottom, an OMB appointee, said in 2011 in a hearing that it was not at that time under consideration. And as I reported in an investigation for Salon, an executive order that Obama did make at the beginning of his first term, which said that contractors could not bill the government for the cost of union busting, turned out to amount to less than you might have expected in that it turns out... According to a spokesperson for USCIS, an agency of the government where union busting by a contractor was taking place, that executive order does not prevent contractors from using the government's facilities for union busting, including, in the case I reported on, office space that was rented by the government and technology and equipment provided by the government for the contractor. So labor has long been calling on Obama to do something more aggressive, to go beyond saying you can't directly bill the government for union busting, to saying if you are not a company that meets a certain standard in terms of wages and environmental sustainability and following the law, you're not going to get federal contracting. And we've seen a government accountability office study in 2010, which found that in fiscal year 2009, several billion dollars in government contracts from the federal government went to companies that were caught not following federal government laws around labor. So this push is significant. It's another example of a strike that is carefully tailored to try to minimize the risk of retaliation and maximize impact. Unlike some of the cases that we've seen recently, there were several allegations when the workers came back to work of workers being denied the chance to come to work. And as we saw in the first fast food strike in New York, initial reports are that activists showed up, and rather than going through the National Labor Relations Board process and having to potentially wait for years, that at least some of these workers who allegedly were being retaliated against for striking were brought back to work because there was a mobilization facing down the managers and telling them to let the people who had gone on strike go back to work and do their jobs.
1: The image that is forever going to mark this particular strike for me was a picture of cops behind the counter at one of these fast food restaurants where these workers had gone on strike, um, essentially working as scabs. In any case, our news roundups for the past couple of weeks have possibly fairly been titled, uh, Look Who's Striking Now?, in, I'm going to take you to Minnesota, where these workers gave up their right to strike, but in a very, very narrow vote in Minnesota's House of Representatives, they voted to allow um, home care and child care workers to form unions. We've seen this happen in California, in um, Washington State, um, in Oregon, where workers who are very, very isolated, working in somebody's home, we've discussed this on the show before, Um who are now given the right to organize and bargain collectively. Uh, most of them, this is work that is funded by the state. It's funded through Medicare or other programs. And so their employer is actually the state, not the person whose home they are working in. Um, or in the case of childcare workers, the children that they are taking into their homes. And so I'm always really impressed with organizing that takes workers who are not on a shop floor together um, and manages to bring them together, to, to work together, to bargain. Um, as I mentioned, the piece that I wrote for Jacobin before today um, in episode three, which, once again, you can find on Dissent Magazine's website, it's hard for workers who take care of people to strike in any case. Their concerns are different. Their problems are different. Um, they, in many cases, have an emotional connection with the people that they're caring for. Um, so it's not actually that surprising. That they give up the right to strike, whether it has consequences for how strong their union can actually be is a question that maybe we'll discuss more on the show in the future.
0: We'll be watching.
1: Yes. So now we're going to bring you an interview with a um, friend of the podcast, friend of both of ours, um, journalist Gabriel Thompson. Um, Gabe is the author of three books, uh, Working in the Shadows, which is a story of his time doing undercover doing the jobs that mostly immigrant workers do, um, a book called Calling All Radicals and There's No Jose Here. His focus has been on not just on labor and organizing, but on specifically immigrant worker organizing. Um, He wrote a wonderful piece about a a chicken plant that managed to successfully win a union campaign, even though most of the workers are undocumented, when I was still editing at Alternat. He's written for The Nation. He's written for, I can't even tell you how many other publications. And we're very glad to have him here to talk about his next project.
2: How you going live your life when well, your ass won't yeah. fight Don't say what you don't like if you just let shit pass back Don't say that you are radical if you ain't felt that life. Rebel against them if they
1: try to take your right but So own... Gabe, your last book, Working in the Shadows, sent you undercover into jobs that are mostly done by immigrant workers. Um, tell us a little bit about those jobs that you did and why the common perception is that Americans won't do them.
2: The first thing I think that they all have in common is sort of a mind-boggling amount of work that they squeeze out of you in in just a single shift. So the the first job I did was harvesting lettuce for Dole in Yuma, Arizona. And in the winter, pretty much all the lettuce you eat is coming out of Dole, is coming out of Yuma. And during a single shift, most, most folks would harvest, you know, cut and bag about 4,000 heads of, of lettuce. And then in... One of the other jobs I did was at this poultry plant in rural Alabama, and there, I think it was was sort of what you could squeeze out of a person was was taken to almost its, you know, the extreme. I don't know how much more further you could go. Um, The plant had 1,500 people. Uh, It killed and sort of dismembered nearly one and a half million uh, chickens a week, and during a, the course of a single shift, one of my jobs was tearing chicken breasts in half. And I also had been a vegetarian since grade school, so that was kind of an introduction to what, reminding me what a chicken breast even looked like. And during a single shift, you would go through seven, to 8,000 chicken breasts by hand, tearing them in half. And by the end of the day, you know, by the end of the first week, you're just thinking, how do you do this without living in chronic pain? And... Um, in fact you don 't I mean one of the one of the lessons I guess that I took from from the from my experiences was how many people 's work causes them to live in chronic pain, and how one of, one of my coworkers said, "These jobs make you old quick and um, I thought that was really accurate
1: yeah so while we 're talking about immigrant workers, um, of course, Congress is debating the new immigration reform bill. Tell us about what you think would help the workers at the jobs that you did and whether we're likely to see any of it in the new immigration bill.
2: Okay, so the first part is an easier, much easier question to answer. I think certainly having, allowing a lot of undocumented workers, you know, that that I worked with in these different jobs a path to citizenship um, makes it much easier to sort of reform these industries that are squeezing workers because it's already hard enough, you know, as any union organizer knows, it's, it's hard enough to organize right now. It's especially hard if a sizable percentage of the workforce is not just worried about losing their job but is worried about being deported or is worried about losing their job and not being able to find another job because of their legal status. So I think the fact that potentially, you know, 11 million or, or so people would, would be on the path of citizenship but allow them to more readily assert you know, their, their rights on the job. And you know, on the left, of course, we care about that because we care about immigrants, we care about workers. But I think it's also important to remember that by bringing people out of the shadows, you're also strengthening the hand of all the other workers that they're working alongside. You're taking away one arrow away in the quiver of, of companies in terms of ways to divide workers. In, in terms of whether or not what we'll see coming out of this will help people, uh, I can say that it just everything feels a lot different, you know. The Democrat strategy coming out of failed reform attempts in 2005, 2006, 2007, was sort of how do we get even tougher? You know, I think Schumer, he gave this talk in 2009, Charles Schumer, and it was immigration, a new era, and his first principle was illegal, illegal immigration is wrong plain and simple. And then it led with more why it was terrible, why we needed more enforcement. And the thinking that had been poll tested, you know, by democratic strategists and everything was we needed to get really tough. And that getting tough with increased enforcement, more deportations, border drones, etc., would lead us to the second part of reform, which is a path to citizenship. And I think years later it's clear that 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 proved false, that theory didn't work. What that gave us was a sort of out-of-control enforcement system. And what's what's different this time around, uh, what, what's created the political space, you know, two things that seem to be really key was one, dreamers coming out, not with poll-tested sort of messaging uh, proofs, but just, here I am, I'm undocumented, I'm unafraid, I'm a person, deal with me, uh, and respect me. And two, the the show of force among the Latinos uh, in 2012. So I think there's now watching the process and all these different amendments come up and the pushback, the immediate pushback, uh, is very different than I think what happened in '06 and 07 where bills that started out, eh, you know, okay, got terrible in a hurry, and the only response from Democrats is, okay, if that's what it takes, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it.
0: Gabe, you've written for The Nation, in part based on your own poultry experience, about the drawbacks of the Obama USDA's plans to transform poultry inspection in the U.S. What is changing? What's the status now? And why do you think it is that progressives are fighting defensive battles on federal workplace regulation under Obama? Yeah, That's a crazy story. Um, So,
2: basically, the USDA... It's arguing that because of advances in food safety, they can increase the line speed um, at turkey and poultry plants. And uh, you know, it's the whether or not that's true that the that the food can still be safely inspected. I think is a big question, um, and people have, are very critical of that part of it. But what happens? I think this is illustrative of the way in which we often forget about workers and all these. Debates, whether it's about food uh, or so many issues, is that no one asks what would happen to the workers on these poultry lines if you crank up the speed by you know a third more or sometimes double the speed. Um, what would be the impact on their hands and wrists? And um, so I think that would sort of shows some of the blind spots we still have when we talk about issues. Right now, the status is still apparently that they're they're still set to implement the the rule, which would speed up um, the lines. But uh, it's been sort of been debated for a while, and the unions um, came out against it. The UFCW, which represents poultry workers, so I think it's right now kind of uh, to be determined.
1: So your next project is a biography of legendary organizer Fred Ross. Um, tell us who Ross is, why you're writing about him, and why most of us haven't heard who he is.
2: In the fall of 2007, when I was getting ready to work in the lettuce fields in Yuma, and I was reading about the rise of the United Farm Workers and Cesar Chavez, who who led that union. And one of the books I was reading talked about how Chavez first got involved in organizing. and Uh, In in 1952, in East San Jose, he was living, he was then 25 years old, and this white guy starts wandering around the neighborhood, knocking on doors, talking about registering people to vote and building the political power of Mexican-Americans. And Chavez was initially really skeptical uh, of this guy, who was Fred Ross, but ended up hearing, listening to what Ross was saying, and ended up being taken under Ross's organizing wing for a decade, along with another person that Ross recruited, Dolores Huerta, and really became sort of uh, a student of Ross's organizing. I I heard that story, and I was like, wow, why don't I know more about Fred Ross, who was this guy? And kind of the more I learned, the more interested I became, because he was born in 1910 and died in 1992, but he spent his life sort of organizing with Mexican-Americans, building the political power of Latinos. Um, helping lay the groundwork, I think, for a lot of people that came out of the United Farm Workers. You know, I I worked for a while as an organizer, and it's easy to forget when you read stories about organizing campaigns, and especially victories, it's easy to think like, well, organizing is an exciting occupation, it's important to get things done, Uh, it makes the news, which is always great as an organizer, but that almost never happens. Uh, You know, a lot of organizing is behind the scenes, day after day, and it has... Big impacts, but they're often not recognized. And so for me, someone like Ross, who, who spent his life organizing and really had a big impact, is it's important to share his life and what he did, but it's also a way to remember the kind of critical role that organizers play in you know, pushing our country slightly more towards a just or illusion.
0: Ross spent several years working for Saul Alinsky, who listeners may remember as the author of Rules for Radicals or a recently emerged Republican boogeyman. How much overlap was there between Ross's organizing philosophy and Alinsky's as they each developed? And where do you think we do or don't see their influence in the way that U.S. unions are organizing now?
2: So Alinsky really helped raise the money that funded Ross's work. Volinsky was, you know, a great fundraiser, or a good fundraiser, I should say, and a, a good speaker, and Ross was not flashy and had no interest, nor was he skilled at all in raising money. So they, they worked together for almost 20 years. One of the biggest differences between the two, I think, is Volinsky's theory about how to do the work was you, you built coalitions of coalitions. So you, you pulled a bunch of different groups together that, that were already doing work, um, and you kind of amplified their power by bringing them together. And that was also a very male endeavor. You know, the people that came to the, that were the heads of neighborhood associations or some of the unions were all pretty much men. Ross switched that a little bit. He really focused on, he was organizing in, uh, in Southern California, mostly among Mexican-Americans, and there weren't too many organizations. And he found that a number of the organizations that existed weren't exactly excited about doing organizing. And so he started doing more house a house meeting approach, which is small meetings among among people who might not even be a part of any organization. And that was a pretty big and important tactic, I think, because people can tend to feel very isolated and feel like they don't have any social networks. And organizing, you're always trying to figure out how do you bring... The most people together, with the least amount of energy. But by building off the links that already existed among family members and friends and having them invite people over, Ross was able to kind of build organizations from the ground up in a way that Alinsky didn't do too much. The other thing that Ross, and this is why I admire Ross, one of the things I admire about him, is he really spent a lot of his time working with women and feeling that women were, were at least as capable and often more capable of leading than men. And so I think that's another sort of difference or divergence in that, in that Ross spent a lot of his time um, with people like Dolores Huerta uh, in his work.
1: Do you see this influence in organizing today, or do you think that current union leaders could maybe learn something from your upcoming book?
2: Well, if you, if you trace Ross, like Eliseo Medina at, at, at CIU, who's been a, a huge proponent of immigration reform and a, a key labor leader in terms of expanding the labor's working with in coalition with immigrant groups. Alexia Medina was actually trained under Ross in 1966 in, in Delano during a big UFW Teamsters election. Uh, and I think if, if that election had not been won by the UFW, there's a pretty good chance that the UFW uh, would, have, would have collapsed. So Alexia Medina is one person. I think in many internationals and many locals you'll have people who were trained by Ross, I think that the biggest legacy that he leaves in terms of his thinking about organizing, and it's one of my favorite quotes it's that of his, is that, you know, in most things, if you do a half-assed job, at least you get something done. And in organizing, if you do a half-assed job, you don't get anything done. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's really quite true when things fall apart in organizing, it's just, you know, you really have to push hard and you really have to sort of work around the clock. And I think that sort of, grit is something that he he helped spread through the labor movement.
0: That that conflict you mentioned between the UFW and and the Teamsters at the time, there is a tendency some folks have to shy away from covering or engaging with or parsing the claims when we see unions fighting each other. That can you talk some about the significance of that conflict in terms of the development of the Uf, the UFW?
2: Yeah, well, so the UFW, and at that time I think it was the National Farm Workers Association, um, I don't think it had become the UFW yet, it was, it was, it was claiming that it was the voice of um, Latino, Mexican-American farm workers. But it hadn't really been put up to a test, and it had no money. Uh, Chavez, I think, one of the things that ran throughout his life, the theme was that he would take big risks and take on big projects with absolutely no resources to accept his own sort of will. Um, and, so, and the Teamsters had quite a bit of money, and the Teamsters were, were represented in organized uh, workers in the packing sheds, but they never paid much attention to Mexican farm workers. And so it was one of those situations where uh, the, the Teamsters were friendly with the, the company, the Giorgio. Uh, and had just about every advantage you could have in terms of money, being able to get on the property. Um, but what they didn't have was any sympathy with farm workers. And, in fact, one of the, one of the strategies that, that Ross and the campaign did was they figured out that anyone that had worked at the to Georgia over the last couple of years, I think, could be eligible to vote in this election. And a number of those people, because they're migrant farm workers, were even all the way back in Mexico – So they set up this dragnet that drove all the way back to Texas and Mexico to actually bring people um, to vote in that election. Um, And they won. It was a pretty narrow victory, but they won. And if they had lost that, you know, the UFW had been going around talking about that they were they represented the true voice and the will of the farm workers. If they had lost their first election, you know, whether or not the teamsters, had more money and were in collusion with the growers and whatever, that wasn't going to be the headline. The headline was going to be that the workers voted for the Teamsters. So I think it was a, it was a key moment in, in the USW's history.
1: So as you mentioned that Ross was a white man who spent most of his time working with Mexican-Americans, um, working on other racial justice issues. You mentioned in your Kickstarter he worked to end the internment of Japanese-Americans, that he worked on school segregation. You Tell us a bit about that and about that example for today's unions. I'm thinking, I'm feeling like we see some of the echo of that in what the Chicago Teachers Union is doing right now.
2: Yeah, I think mean, he, he came, he had a, a wealth of experiences. By the time he got into organizing, really into organizing, it was 1947 and that was when he was working on desegregating schools with parents in um, the Citrus Belt in Riverside, east of L.A. But by the time he got to that point, uh, you know, he, he grew up in a conservative, middle-class family in L.A., graduates college in the Depression from USC. Can't find any work because it's the Depression except managing a, a, a farm labor camp in Oregon, which is near Bakersfield, which was sort of a, a place that Dust Bowl refugees were streaming into California and were settling there. And that's the same camp that John Steinbeck fictionalized in The Grapes of Wrath. So that really opened his eyes, I think, to the, a different sort of life than what he had known. You know, he didn't have any exposure to that. And he spent a couple of years there, and then during the World War II, took on a position actually, initially, I think, was sort of ambivalent about the sending the evacuation of Japanese and Japanese-Americans to concentration camps, um, but got a job running the community services at one of the camps in Idaho. And... Was immediately kind of appalled that, that all these people were in these camps, so he he moved to Cleveland and, and helped find housing and jobs. As long as people, at a certain point, once people could be secured housing and jobs, they could move out of the camps inland, which was not a really easy task because the country had just been totally whipped into hysteria about Japanese Americans being a menace, and suddenly, you know. Someone's coming to the door saying, "Hey, would you rent your place to Japanese American family?" And you know, while oh, yeah, the why don't you give them a job as well? So he came. By the time he got into unions, I, you know, he had a, a broad vision, and he had really been formed by the Depression and by his his time in World War II, uh, working with Japanese Americans. So part of me wonders what sort of leaders are going to be coming out of you know the recessions, that depression, that that was caused by by the financial collapse. You know, I think you're seeing some of that today, but, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, you know, who are going to be the people that that were sort of radicalized by the experience of all these foreclosures, jobs being lost, banks getting bailed out? If there's something positive to come out of it, I hope it'll be a whole sort of cadre of folks that, that are going to fight back against that.
0: So you're pursuing this book through Kickstarter. What exactly are you kickstartering about it, and why and how did you become a kickstarterer? <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I'm I'm usually late to the game, just about everything. But I, I I'm writing a biography of Fred Ross, and I've been trying to juggle journalism with that biography. But the the amount of work that it is is new to me. There's like 10 different archives to visit around the country. And it's going to be published by the University of California Press, but you know a little while ago there was this talk about how low with journalists, how how hard it is to make it as a freelance journalist, which is totally true. Um, I found the best way for me to piss money away is to try to write books. And it's just like the the Kickstarter campaign is to help me um, try to fund the research for the book by visiting a number of archives and conducting uh, oral history interviews with a number of people that, that are quite old now, that worked with Ross in the 40s and 50s, trying to get their voices into the, into the book. So that's, that's the Kickstarter campaign in a nutshell.
1: Well, we will put a link to the Kickstarter campaign at thedissentmagazine.org, um, where you can go check it out. That would be wonderful. And support Gabe's work. Um, thank you for joining us, Gabe.
0: Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. We'll be following Gabe's work, and we hope you will as well. As we close, long time seven week, seven week that's listeners, seven weeks. That's that's kind of a mediumly long length of time (laughs) seven week listeners will know this is when we say argh i wish i had written that sarah this week if you could convert matter into pure jealous energy what would be the piece that would be fueling that jealous energy
1: so I am envious of our friend Micah Utrecht for his ongoing work on the Chicago Teachers Union. Um, it's been fantastic all around. Um, and this week he has a piece up at The Nation talking about the re-election of the core caucus, the one that brought us Karen Lewis, featured on Belabored episode one. Check it out. Check it out. <laughs> um the caucus, as Micah says in the piece, it's not important about the personalities, and Karen said this herself to us as well. The, the point is that they, come in, they came into power, and they will continue going forward, or at least they say they will, to have a radically democratic strategy for how to run the union. So um, they cut salaries for officers and instituted more organizing. Um, They've really done community outreach. Right now, as we record, um, they are, along with members of the community, some fantastic students at the Board of Education while the board is voting on whether they are going to close the 54 schools, um, again, that Karen discussed with us in Belabored Episode 1. And Micah really highlights the choice between this democratic social movement unionism, I think it's entirely fair to say, and the sort of more narrow business unionism. Um, He talks to the other candidate for union president and really shows us where CTU's fights, where CORE and where possibly other teachers' unions are going.
0: I am filled with jealousy, as often at the work of Katie Baker, Whose piece this week connects to another story that we've discussed on the past on the Belabored Podcast? Check out our past episodes at Descent's website or on iTunes, where if you are an iTunesy person, you can also rate our podcast. Katie Baker wrote a piece called Your Favorite Stores Aren't Signing the Bangladesh Safety Act for Jezebel, where Katie runs through the public statements and comments to reporters of several of the major U.S. retailers about their decisions not to sign on to the Bangladesh Fire Safety and Building Safety Agreement that we've discussed on this podcast. What is key is that rather than just taking these statements at face value, Katie considers what it is that is motivating this opposition, parses what it is that the companies are saying in their own defense, and teases out the distinction between paying money that frankly is a tiny amount in many cases of the revenue of these companies and conceding some kind of power by agreeing to an actually enforceable agreement. And so she makes clear why it is that when a company like Gap suggests that they are 90% of the way to agreement, to overlap between what they're willing to do and what this agreement includes – you should take that other 10% very seriously because that 10% is about the company being able to be held accountable under law or even more importantly, by the people who actually work in these factories. Again, that piece is for Jezebel. It's your favorite stores aren't signing the Bangladesh Safety Act.
1: Every time there's a nice workers' rights piece at Jezebel or another Gawker media site, it makes me very happy because it makes me feel like there are all sorts of people who care about workers, that it's not just a few of us writing for a few labor-focused outlets, but that really there is an appetite for these kinds of stories.
0: Well, it's not often we end the Belabored podcast on a happy note, so we we will rush to end it before we sink back into something depressing. But please do share the podcast with your friends. Please do tweet at DescentMag with the Belabored hashtag. Please do... Let iTunes know that you like the podcast if you like the podcast. Please pitch us stories and please come back next week.
1: Thanks again. This life is
2: hard so hard I must go. we can't go